We are in Acts. We can turn to Acts chapter 23. Tonight's sermon is called Overt Operative. Overt Operative. Obviously, we've heard of Covert Operative, but uh, tonight we're going to look at Paul. And throughout his ministry, we've already seen that he's a very overt person. And throughout the Bible, we kind of see this, that God wants his people to be overt rather than covert. Uh, we see this, a good example is looking at the disciples, right? Judas, who ended up betraying Jesus, and throughout Jesus' whole ministry, he was stealing from Jesus, and nobody knew except for Jesus, right? And he was being very covert. He was hiding the way he felt. He was hiding what he believed. He was hiding what he was doing. Everything was very hidden. And even when he plotted against Jesus to get him arrested... It was under the cover of night. It was the middle of the night when they came and they arrested Jesus, right? And we look at someone like the leader of the disciples, Peter, very overt. You always knew what he was thinking. You always knew what he was doing. He was the first one to proclaim Jesus as the Christ. He was he was very overt in everything he did and everything he said, sometimes to a fault. Um, but, but that, at least you knew where he was coming in from, what he thought, what he believed. So, again, we see that throughout the Bible, that, that that's kind of how God wants us to live and how God wants us to be. He wants us to be overt people, not hiding our feelings, hiding what we believe, hiding what we're doing, rather being overt. Our faith should be out there. People should know what you believe. People should know that you're a Christian. People should know like how you feel and what, and what you're doing to be sort of a, a hiding. And this is hard for me, like personally, like I, I I've always sort of tried to hide my feelings or, or all of these things. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight is Paul. And again, we've seen this in his ministry already, how he is an overt person. Now, we've also seen in Paul's ministry that he, as Jesus told his disciples to be wise as serpents, but gentle or innocent as doves. We've seen that in Paul's ministry too, where he is sort of sneaky in how he talks about things, what he brings up. But he's not being covert in that he's being conniving. He's not plotting against people. He's not being sneaky in that way. He's just being wise in how he's talking about things, as Jesus told us to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. So when I say covert, again, we've also seen Paul like sneak out of the city when they're trying to kill him because he's trying to protect the people that he's ministering to. He's trying to protect his ministry, and he's trying to, you know, it, it's not his time to die yet, so he sneaks out and he, he saves his life that way. So I'm not saying you can never hide what you're doing and like be foolish and rush into things. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, in, as a general rule, it's good to be an overt person, have an overt personality, rather than a nobody knows me, nobody knows what I'm doing, nobody knows what I, I believe. That's not how God wants us to live. So with that in mind, we will look at Acts chapter 23. If you remember where we are, or where we were last week, finishing up, I'll actually start in Acts 22, verse 30. And what's been happening is, Paul finally makes it to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's been telling him that he's going to be persecuted. He's going to see hard times in Jerusalem. He makes it there. He goes to the temple to sort of have announce this vow he's going to do, and he's attacked. The whole city starts beating him, kicking him, 
whole mob is just like against Paul. The commander learns about it. He rushes in, saves Paul, carries him up these stairs to the barracks. And Paul says, let me address them. Let me talk to them. So with this sort of like guard, he, he addresses the Jews who are just trying to kill him. And they listen to his sermon up to the point where he talks about God reaching out to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And then they all freak out again. And so the commander takes him and gets him to a safe place. But at the end of 22, verse 30, it says the next day. So after all of that happened, the next day, because he, this is the, the commander, he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews. So the commander wants to know why Paul is so hated and so accused by the Jews. And because he, he wants to know that, he releases him, he released Paul from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, many years have passed since Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead and conquered sin and death and died as our sacrifice and went into heaven, right? It's been about 25, 30 years since then. But this is the same Sanhedrin that they're in Jerusalem. This is the same sort of group of people. Maybe some have come in and gone out, but it's the same Sanhedrin that conspired against and killed Jesus under the cover of night. So he is set before them. And Paul says, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, here uh, we see a similar thing that happened to Jesus, actually. And keep your finger or, or bookmark here. We're going to go to John chapter 18. It's the book right before Acts. John chapter 18. Starting in verse 19. This is right out after Judas conspires to have him arrested. They come in the middle of the night, as I said. They uh, attack him, and now he's being questioned by this same Sanhedrin. He's being questioned by the high priest. And verse 19 says, The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if I have spoken well, why do you strike me? Very similar. Very similar. So, 
There are some similarities. There are some differences. And before we get into those, I also want to say what Jesus is doing here. It's very interesting. Again, they're questioning him in the middle of the night until daybreak. It's an all-night questioning. They are just, like, doing this thing. And the reason they're doing it at night, it, it's illegal. Uh, Jewish law, much like our law, they were not allowed to uh, basically condemn themselves. You know, our Fifth Amendment right is that you have the right to, to, to stay silent so that you don't condemn yourself. And you can sort of be protected like, well, you need a witness. You need to prove that I did this thing. And that was the same in Jewish law, where you needed not only one witness, you needed two or three witnesses at least. There were no witnesses to come up against Jesus. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to get him to condemn himself. And so when they're asking him these questions, they're trying to get him to say something that they can twist, or they're trying to provoke him into doing or saying something that he shouldn't be doing or saying so that they can say, aha, see, we got you. And so they ask him about his doctrine and he says, I'm an overt person. I I spoke openly. My doctrine is out there. There's a lot of people who could bear witness of me for good. Why don't you bring somebody who's heard me preach and they will tell you what I believe? Because there's nobody against Jesus. He did not break the law at any time. So they have nothing against him. So he says, bring some of the people who know about me and have heard me speak and let's let's have some let's bring in some witnesses he's basically challenging them he knows you don't have court in the middle of the night you guys are doing this in the cover of night because you're being covert trying to be sneaky you have only false witnesses against me and no true witnesses against me so set them up let's bring some true witnesses in and and have this happen then they strike him and he knowing the same verse that Paul quoted, right? What did Paul say? Back to 23. When he apologizes, right? He says, uh, For it is written, You shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Jesus references, he doesn't quote it, but he says, If I have spoken evil, bear witness. Like, what is it that I have done? What is it that I have said that was evil? Bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? He knows that he didn't do anything wrong. He knows he knows he didn't break the law, and he's challenging them again. Bring your witness. What was it that I said that was against the law? What was it that I did that I shouldn't have done? And it progresses from here, where they they know that he's right, right, and they just keep pushing and pushing and pushing until eventually they kill him. But some similarities, some differences about these two scenarios with Jesus and with Paul. Again, number one. There were no witnesses in both of these these situations. No witnesses were coming against them. They're just trying to provoke him and, and get them to say something wrong or do something wrong. That's uh, number two. They were trying to pr- provoke both Jesus and Paul. Number three, Jesus and Paul appeal to what the peop- their accusers already know. And they, they appeal to their innocence, right? Jesus says, you have heard me speak and so have many others. You know my doctrine. You know what I believe. Paul says in the first verse, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. We're going to learn before this, he's basically saying here, and he, he says it more uh, clearly later, but in, we'll probably get into it next week, but these people know Paul. He grew up in Jerusalem. This is his, These are his peers. These are people who know him very well. 
He's saying, my family lives here. You know me. You know I've lived in, in good conscience until now. You know that I am a, a good person. And so he's appealing to what they already know and to his innocence, just as Jesus did. Uh, number four, they're trying to force submission, right? The smacking on the mouth. Do you talk to God's high priest? It's funny in Jesus' situation because he's our great high priest, mm-hmm. right? And there's like this false high priest that's standing and saying, you submit to me. And Jesus is like, I'm being respectful, but you're kind of sitting in my seat. Like, he doesn't say that, but like, that's exactly what's going on. So this high priest is trying to force submission to uh, somebody who's called by God. And in both situations, there's these, they're different high priests, but they're sitting in the same seat falsely. The high priest was supposed to signify and point to the Christ. Christ comes and he says, submit to me. You you are under me. And because you're saying that you're above me, we're going to kill you. Paul comes and says, the Christ came, he's above you, and they're trying to kill Paul now. That's number five. They're trying to kill both Paul and Jesus. Number six, both Jesus and Paul were overt, and the men coming against them were covert. They were plotting against Jesus. They're about to plot against Paul. Now, the differences between these two things. Jesus keeps calm, and Paul reacts. Jesus was actually struck. They, they hit Jesus in the mouth. They slapped him because he simply didn't answer the way they wanted him to. Paul, he reacts imperfectly. He, he answers harshly. Yeah, he calls them a whitewash. He calls them names. <laughs> <laughs> Call me that. And again, especially in Jesus' situation, it's the middle of the night, you're being mistreated, and somebody slaps you as a man. Like, what's your instinct if somebody comes at you? Come right back, right? If somebody swings, maybe you swing back. If somebody insults, maybe you insult back. You answer in like manner. That's our nature. But Jesus... He's just simply, he, he, he stays calm. Now, another difference, Jesus was slapped unlawfully. He wasn't being disrespectful. He didn't say anything wrong, and they slapped him to provoke him. Paul was ordered to be struck. Paul, we don't see that he was actually hit. He says, hey, you hit him. And then Paul reacts, right? The point I'm making here is Jesus was more mistreated. Mm. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Interesting about thing about that verse is it's saying the whole verse. It says that Jesus is our high priest. He, he's able to sympathize with us because he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Everything that we've gone through, everything that we've experienced, sometimes we're like, oh, I'm the only one that's ever gone through this. Jesus went through it, and he can go along with us. He is our high priest, yet he's on our he comes down to our level and he helps us through our issues. He was more mistreated and yet he still keeps his calm. And that's the next difference in these situations. They both had emotions, strong emotions, but Jesus has self-control. And that's what we need to remember. This is the great example of Jesus's self-control because again, everything's going bad against Jesus in this situation, and he's slapped unlawfully, and he still stays calm and still speaks 
righteously. The fifth difference is that Jesus didn't have to apologize because he had that self-control. Paul did apologize, which is good on him. If you do something wrong, let's step up to the, to the plate, own it, say, you know what? I, I didn't know or I, I acted wrongly. Um, emotions and reactions, they're natural and they're okay. They're good, actually. Again, we're talking about being an overt person. It's okay and good to have emotions. It's okay to react to things, but control yourself. Whatever situation you're in, no matter who's coming against you, take a breath, ask for God's wisdom, and move forward in self-control. Don't call people names. Don't react. And even if you have very strong emotions, again, ask God for help, and he will help you. And, and try and stay calm. Um, I'm not saying be a Jedi. And <laughs> for a long time in, in my childhood, I thought, like, oh, as a Christian, I'm supposed to be like a Jedi. You know, like, no emotion, no reaction. And when you read the scriptures, sometimes, like, just the reporting of facts, sometimes it looks like that. Like, oh, he's just like, Jedi. Like, no emotion. Completely disconnected from everything. That's not how God wants us to be. He likes that we feel. He feels. He likes that we want to do good. He He's calling us to do good, right? But he doesn't want us to just like have no emotions, have no reactions, have no feelings. Rather, he wants us to control those feelings and control what we do in those feelings. Okay, so again, God created emotions. He has emotions. He wants to have emotions. But what we do with those emotions, right? The Bible says, at one point, be angry and do not sin. Anger is not a sin, but what you do with that anger can become a sin. So I'm not saying be a Jedi, but I'm just saying exercise self-control when it's honestly tough to do. Let's continue with our story. Verse 5, then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit. But the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Again, wise as a serpent. <laughs> kind of a sneaky thing that Paul does here. He kind of pulls the pin out of the grenade and just rolls it out there. He knows these two fight about this specific topic. And he says, this is why I'm being judged. And then mayhem and chaos ensues. They just start fighting each other. He becomes removed from the situation. And then the Pharisees automatically, politically, take his side. We see no fault. He's doing great. All of a sudden, his story has clout, and he is not the focus of this huge dissension. And he's also showing the commanders trying to figure out, like, what's going on? Why is this whole group of people against this one man? 
And by doing this, he's kind of showing the commander, like, they're not mad at me. They're just mad. Like, look at them. They're just chaotic, and they're just going at each other. Like I said, just pulls that pin, rolls in the grenade, and then everything goes crazy. Paul knows his audience, and he knows the scriptures, and he also, he, again, he's wise as a serpent, but he's gentle as a dove. He says this thing, it is an outcry, but it's also, it's just, it's a very interesting way to deal with it. I probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have thought of it, but Paul is being very wise here. I feel like Dave knows how to do that. Really Dave well. is good at it. I've noticed he, he <laughs> kind of pulls stuff up. I'm like, man, where did that come from? <laughs> I think that's the Holy Spirit just sort of moving in the moment of like, yeah. do or say this thing. Um, I want to deal with their conclusion for a second. Their conclusion, because they proclaim that there is a spirit or there is an angel and there is a resurrection. Verse 9 says, Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, we find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Don't automatically believe people who say that they've heard an angel or saw a spirit. Okay? Sometimes people will be like, oh, a spirit told me this, or, or even, oh, God told me this. This is unfortunately a thing in Christian culture. A guy will go to a girl and say, God told me that we're supposed to get married. And she'll say, oh, okay. And then they get married, and it's like a lot wrong because the guy was using that in order to get her to do something when she didn't hear from the Lord. So be careful when somebody just says, oh, I heard from an angel. I heard from a spirit. Don't just automatically say, oh, oh. well, if the, there is a spirit, there is an angel. If you heard from one, then it must be true. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4 says to test all things. And we test all things with the scripture. If, if the spirit or the angel says something that is contrary to the word of God, then it's not true. It's a false spirit. It's a false angel. Or the person heard from a false spirit or a false angel. Or the person is just making it up. We don't know. But if it contradicts the Bible, it's false. Or if somebody's telling me, oh, this angel told me this about you. Well, if God wants me to know that, he will confirm that word. I'll consider it, sure. I'm not saying just throw it out, but I'm saying test all things. Okay? Also, don't believe all spirits. There is a spirit. There are there are spirits. There are angels. There is a, a, a realm that we don't really know that much about. Um, not all angels, not all spirits are good. There are demons. There are spirits who are trying to trick us and trying to do things that are are not okay. First John says to test the spirits. I'll go there quickly. You can go if you want, but you can also just stay here. Just quickly, First John chapter 4. It says, Behold, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Specifically, what he's referencing here, this saying that Jesus came in the flesh, there is this 
cult forming called Gnosticism that said spirit is good, all flesh is bad. And what they did with Jesus was say, well, he wasn't actually in, in the flesh. He was completely spirit. That's why he was good. No, God entered into human flesh and lived as a man for his entire life until he was murdered. Okay, so he's combating. That's why he says, if the spirit does, doesn't say that Jesus came in the flesh, it's false. So test the spirit. Again, test it with the word of God. That is one test. If it doesn't proclaim that Jesus is God, that he came in the flesh, false. But there, we know there are some other cults that say, yeah, Jesus is real. Jesus is good. But then they say other things that contradict what's in the Bible. Test all things with the scripture and test all spirits. Also, Paul saw an angel of light, right? That's what he just told them. Last week we talked about that and they're saying, okay, he saw an angel. Let's believe him. I do need to say, don't believe Paul himself says, right? The guy who just said, I saw Jesus blind me with the glory of God, right? Could be perceived as an angel of light with Jesus. But um, the Bible, Paul himself later says, don't believe every angel of light. Second Corinthians chapter 11 says that Satan himself can disguise himself as an angel of light. And this is a really important passage. I would, I would encourage you to look up Second uh, Corinthians 11, uh, especially with the, the Mormons, because it says in that passage, if a spirit comes and preaches you another Jesus, the Jesus of Mormonism, it's a totally different thing. They teach stuff that is totally contradictory to the Bible. And their leader, Joseph Smith, was approached by an angel of light. Moroni shows up and says, here's this other gospel. And it's adding to the Bible. And it's contradictory to the Bible. And he didn't test it. So he started this whole cult that's now a massive movement. Okay, so test even an angel of light with the scriptures. It needs to line up. God does not contradict himself. So I just wanted to deal with that momentarily. Just because somebody says they heard from a spirit, they heard from an angel, doesn't make them right. Pump the brakes, test what they're saying with the scriptures. That's why it's so important to know what the Bible says so that we can test these things. Verse 10. Now when there arose a great dissension, right? Paul tosses in that grenade. When there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Okay, they're back in the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Say that's not what Jesus said. Um, most of your translations say, Take courage. It's a little bit closer to the original language. And considering what Jesus is about to say, that's probably what Jesus was communicating, take courage. Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Here is the loud and clear calling from Jesus for Paul to minister in Rome. Paul's been promising he's going to go to Jerusalem, then he's going to go to Rome. Here we see Jesus very plainly saying, you're going to Rome after this. And he's going to minister to Rome just like he ministered to Jerusalem. This is why I say I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't say, Cheer up, buddy. 
you're going to do the same ministry in Rome and it's going to be awesome. It's, ah, take courage because you're going to need it. It's going to get rough. What you just went through, you're going to go through it again in Rome. Again, Jesus sympathizes with us. When Jesus was about to go through persecution, he prayed so hard he was bleeding. And this is actually a medical condition. He was sweating great drops of blood. He was praying so hard to please, like, God, let this cup pass from me. He knows that this is a really hard calling. You're going to be persecuted. He's not, he's not saying, like, count it all joy. It's not the moment for that. Like, yes, that's true. Count it all joy when we go through various trials. But in this moment, Jesus is saying, take courage. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Jesus, knowing that it's hard, is the reason that Jesus is showing up and going with Paul through all of these things. He's going with Paul the whole way, right? Jesus says, I am the way. And when we're walking in what he wants us to do, we are walking in the way, right? We're abiding in Christ, to use the the language of the Bible. Verse 12. And when it was day... Some of the Jews band together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. That is dark. That is, that is, I have had people not like me, but dang. Like, I've, I have a lot of people that don't like me. I've, I've said many times if, Somebody doesn't like me, they're in good company. I know a lot of good people that I love that just simply don't like me. And that that's just how life goes sometimes. But nobody has... I, I definitely don't have 40 people in my life who want to band together, swear that they're not going to eat or drink till I'm dead. Like, this is an intense conspiracy. And again, it's a conspiracy. They're conniving. They're plotting against somebody for evil. They are covert. They're secretly planning this thing, and now they're going to continue to secretly plan this thing to try and kill Paul. Verse 14. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son, again, Paul's family's from Jerusalem, Paul's sister's son heard of the ambush, he entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside, and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them. For more than forty of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready 
waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. This is an army. (laughs) This is an army. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. That's a ton of people to protect one guy. Just just to protect little old Paul. And I, I wanted to deal with it a tough topic um, before we continue this the story. We'll we'll pick up the story next week here in Acts. But God's protection. Okay? Does God protect his people? Always? No. It depends on what you're protecting them from. <laughs> well, Paul was attacked by a mob and they were kicking and yeah, beating him. That's true. He was stoned until they thought he was dead. Yeah. In another part of his ministry. Stephen was stoned to death. Stephen was stoned to death. So then the question becomes why? Why, why is there protection for God's people sometimes and sometimes there's not? This is, a, this is a tough topic. This is a hard topic to deal with, but I wanted to deal with it head on because, because it's tough. And because a lot of the time people don't want to ask this question out loud because they're afraid of what people might think or they're afraid that you know people might think that their faith is weak or whatever. But I just wanted to deal with it. Um... I'll ask this. Why did Jesus have to be persecuted and ultimately die? Because we needed a sacrifice for our sins. And since he knew that we were not able of ourselves to raise from the dead, if we were killed for our sins, that he had to do it for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well said. A sacrifice for our sins. So why did he have to die as a sacrifice for our sins? Because he was following his own law. He wasn't just going to, you know, do something. Because God is just, right? Well, like, God creates laws, or he, he says these are the rules, and that if he is like, oh, you can't be saved except this way. And he's like, ah, actually, I'm just going to save you anyways. Then it's like, oh, your rules must not have been righteous in the beginning if mm. you're stepping outside of those bounds now. But he was like, my rules that I set up regarding your sin are just from the beginning, and they're so just that I'm going to do this really hard thing within the boundaries of what I set up because that's what's righteous and that's what's good. Yeah, because we couldn't do it ourselves. Yeah. He set up the law because it's good and it's righteous, right? It's what God wants us to do, but we kept falling short. So 
he had to die as a sacrifice for our sin because there's sin in the world, because we just kept falling short and he wanted us to have right relationship with him, but we just kept failing. So he bridged that gap with Jesus. That reason, because there's sin in the world, that's what my quick and dirty answer is to why is there suffering in the world? Why doesn't God stop suffering? Because there's sin in, in the world. We, we live in a, a fallen world. And the more truth that is spoken, the more heavenly and righteous truth, the more the world will hate the speaker of those things. This is a fallen world. It's, it's not difficult to figure out that if truth himself, right? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. That's what Jesus said. So if truth himself comes, it's not hard to figure out that this evil place will hate him more than anybody, right? The more truth that is spoken, the more, the more righteousness that there is, people hate it. Because it shows their wickedness. And so Jesus comes and they hate him. And they, they seek to kill him. What Jesus did when he came, fulfilled the law, died for our sins as a sacrifice, and then rose from death, he paved a way, right? He said, I'm the way, but he paved that way for us to walk in. So now, walk in it. Like, walk in that way. Walk in the way that Jesus provided for us to walk in. Abide in Christ, and he'll abide in you. But, know this, you will see persecution when you're following in the way of God, the way of righteousness, the way that Jesus provided for us to walk in. You will see persecution. You will be hated. You will lose friends. And you're picking a fight when you walk righteously, when you're following the way of God. When you read the Bible and do what it says, you're picking a fight with what the Bible calls the ruler of this world. The devil. The devil rules over earth. The devil rules over this world and he hates truth. The Bible says he's a liar and the father of all lies. He is wicked. He is against God. He tried to rise up to the level of God. When Jesus came, he tried to kill him, thinking that he was winning, but really he just fulfilled the prophecy of God all along and made a way for us to enter into right relationship with God. Now, the good news, right? There is good news to this. It's getting a little dark. Uh, the devil also has a ruler, and that is our Heavenly Father. God created him. And he rebelled against God. He went rogue and, again, tried to sit in God's seat. He tried to overthrow God. And there was a great war in heaven, and he was cast out of heaven. That's the story of the devil. And when he was cast out of heaven, he was cast to earth, and now he rules over this realm. This is why Jesus told us to ask that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because God, even though... The devil is sort of the governor, right? The ruler of this world. God created this world. It's ultimately his. 
And so when we pray that, when we say, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's not always God's will here, but we ask for God to intervene and to help us and to protect us. We ask for protection and we ask for God's help, but ultimately, if protection and help doesn't come, it doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. It does not mean that God lost that battle. It doesn't mean that the devil is stronger. It is because mankind sinned, continues to sin, and invites evil into their lives, invites evil into the world, and the devil rules this place. And when God does protect us, it's nothing short of a miracle. God intervenes, he comes down, he sets up some sort of protection. Like, that is amazing. And we should thank God for those things when that happens. But when something is done against you, we need to realize this, if there isn't that protection, that God will use that, and he does use it, the Bible tells us, even that wicked thing done against you, he uses it for good. Last week we talked about God as the weaver at the loom, right? Joseph said, you, talking to his brothers, you you weaved this for evil, but God weaved it for good. Right? You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Those That darkest cord in your life, God twists that into the most beautiful part of the tapestry of your life, or he, he moves it into his plan. It's an amazing thing that God does, but... He moves it for good because God is always only ever good. God is goodness itself. So from here you might say, well, if God's so good, why is there evil in the world? This is the age-old question. This is the question that many have asked, and sadly, many have abandoned their faith because of this question. It was interesting when you're talking about like Jesus and Paul and then now what you're talking about is making me think about uh, when Jesus was on earth how obviously he had suffering and things that happened to him and it's not like he was protected like a little bubble around Jesus as he went through the world but like there's certain parts of the Bible where it's like a mob wants to push him off a cliff or whatever but he escapes because his it says his hour had not come and he always says, my hour has not come. And I was like, well, I guess that's the same with, like, suffering with Paul or other, anybody is, you know, sometimes God allows things to happen. Sometimes those people be killed. And other times he calls a protection because their hour has not come. And only God knows that. And we don't. Amen. God will always also, on that same note, God will always fulfill his promises. Yeah. If he tells Paul, you're going to minister in Rome, Paul knows, well, I'm not going to die at least till then. Ah! <laughs> like, I have to fulfill that calling on my life. Yeah. And so he moves in confidence throughout his life because, well, God made a promise. I know I'll be protected at least till then. He, he has a purpose for us. Again, we are his workmanship, right? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Walking in that way... And we have a job to do that God has set us up to do. If we have not fulfilled that job yet, especially if he's told us what that is, we, if he's told us what it is, we can walk in confidence. Well, I haven't fulfilled that yet. 
trying to fulfill it. If you're not trying to fulfill it, then you're abandoning the way, right? You're turning your back on God. But walking in that way and moving towards what God has called you to do, that is how you can be ensured that, okay, I'm fulfilling God's calling on my life. But this world is evil. There is going to be evil in our lives, and sometimes we're not going to be protected. And it's like, why? Why is there evil? Again, because mankind does wickedness, chooses evil, and invites evil into our lives and into this world. So you might say, well, can't God do whatever he wants? Like, why doesn't he just protect all of his people? Wouldn't that just be easier? And Hey, wouldn't that make more people want to be in his family? I'll start by saying... I don't have the answers to all of your questions. I will say be careful about judging and questioning God. It's okay to have questions. It's good to have questions, but say like, why you do this, God? And getting angry at God for things he does. Pump the brakes there because Paul didn't ask these types of questions. Even as he's on the ground being kicked by a, a, a whole city mob trying to kill him. When he's being stoned and left for dead, he doesn't say, why me, God? He just knows he's fulfilling his calling. Richard Wormbrand, which was Pastor Dave's pastor, who wrote the book, Tortured for Christ, Dave was having a conversation with him and asked a specific question about when Wormbrand was being tortured. Like, didn't you, like, just cry out? Like, what made you... Hold on, didn't you ask, like, why God was doing this? Why didn't he protect you? And Richard Wormbrand said, real faith doesn't ask such questions. Real faith in Jesus, you don't ask that question. You fulfill the calling that he has on your life. And if he protects you, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. If he doesn't, then he's got a different purpose for you in mind. He is good. We need to trust in that goodness. Now, I don't want to leave it there. I don't want to leave it with, don't, you know, question God. Many people, again, they've abandoned their faith because of this question, and I don't want to just flippantly say, well, just don't ask that question. The question is going to come up, and it's a tough question to really wrestle with, but what I will say that the Scripture is extremely clear about is that God wants us to choose to love Him. And um, I think I'm probably going a little late, but if you guys are okay, I was going to end with a, like a six-minute video. You guys good with that? Yeah. Do you guys know who uh, Ravi Zacharias is? He, yes. Jewish, right? He is an Indian guy. Um, <laughs> I know he is, but I thought he was Jewish. And he is like a prominent theologian, and he travels around and does conferences and debates, and he, he speaks to a lot of people. Exactly. And so this is a question that somebody had for him at one of those events. This question is for a rabbi. Um, you mentioned the story of, I think you said he was Jewish, and he was shot by, uh, at that, I, I think it was a concentration camp or something like that. And I'm going to play the devil's advocate for a bit and pretend I'm Sam Harris. Um, you stated that God was watching. God watched the gentleman pull the trigger. 
if God was watching, why didn't he make that trigger not work? Why didn't he make that poor individual just pass out while he was digging the grave? Um, I believe Sam Harris would ask that type of question and demand an answer. Yes, I appreciate that question. Um, the playing the devil's advocate just said that why didn't God keep the man from pulling the trigger rather than allowing the man to pull the trigger and then watch over him and uh, bringing about some kind of judgment? I would say this to you, that the supreme ethic that God has given to us is the ethic of love. It is the peak of all intellectual and emotional alignment. This thing we call love, which places value upon the other person of worth and as something to be protected. It was interesting of all people, it was Oscar Wilde who on his deathbed in his 40s, by his lover by his side, Robbie Ross, he turned to Robbie and he said, did you love any one of those little boys for their own sake? It was an incredible question to ask by a man who was a hedonist on his deathbed in his 40s. And he said, Robbie, did you ever love any one of those little boys for their own sake? And Robbie Ross said, no, I can't say I did. He said, bring me a minister. Bring me a minister. And it was in his magnificent poem, The Ballad of Reading Jail, that Oscar Wilde said, only Christ was big enough to cleanse his heart and forgive him for all that he had done. The point even the hedonist realized was that in pleasure also, value and love are the supreme ethics that can be treasured. But you can never have love without intrinsically weaving into it the freedom of the will. You cannot have love without the freedom of the will. If you are compelled by some machine to a certain decision, you can never love. You can comply, but you will never be choosing to express that sentiment and the reality of love. If love is a supreme ethic and freedom is indispensable to love, and God's supreme goal for you and for me is that we will love him with all of our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves, for him to violate our free will would be to violate that which is a necessary component so that love can flourish and love can be expressed. If you're asking for God to always stop the trigger, why not God stop everything else? Next time you hold a cup of boiling water, he makes it frozen water instead. Next time you're about to cross the street and you're gonna be hit, he pulls your leg back. What you're asking for is a different Entity than humanity. As wonderful as it may seem that in stopping that you think he is protecting you from that which is destructive, the greatest denial that you're asking for is the freedom of your will to be able to choose and to love God with all your heart and all your soul. When you've got love as a supreme ethic and the freedom of the will to choose that love, all of the other contingencies come in and can become explained why it is possible to either choose or to reject so that love can ultimately reign 
reign supreme. If you want compliance and, a and some kind of a mechanical response, your question itself will self-destruct. You're asking the question because you're free to ask it, and you're free to ask it because you're free to love. And when you love him, in spite of all of the contraries that you see around us, you're trusting him for having the supreme wisdom and the knowledge to ultimately bring a pattern out of it all. We think, for example, we know so much. The story is told in Mid-Eastern folklore of this man who lost his horse and ran away. And when the horse ran away, the neighbor came to him and said, you know, bad luck, isn't it? Your horse is gone. He said, what do I know about these things? A few days later, the horse came back with 20 other wild horses. And the neighbor came and said, amazing, it's not bad luck, it's good luck. You've got 20 more. Man says, what do I know about these things? His young son is going and taming one of the new horses. That young horse kicks him and breaks his leg. The neighbor comes and says, terrible, isn't it? Your son's leg is broken. Bad luck that these horses came. The fellow says, what do I know about good luck and bad luck? A few days go by and a bunch of thugs are coming, looking for recruits to join their gang. And they're looking for all the able-bodied young men. And they're about to pick this young man, but find out his leg is broken. And they say, we don't want him. We're going to move on to the next house. So the man comes and says, good luck, isn't it? Your son's leg was broken. In one little series of episodes we don't know what lies ahead why don't you wait till you stand before God face to face and you will find out there were reasons why he didn't stop that trigger so that you will see the heinousness of evil and see the majesty of love and good managing to navigate yourself as a pilgrim's progress to come to the celestial city no matter how dark things get we need to trust in God's goodness. He is always, only, ever good. And again, he, he is the weaver at the loom, and he will weave those darkest things in your lives into good. The Bible tells us that God works all things together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things. That is, all the good things and all the worst things, he works together for good. And we have to trust in God's goodness. I, again, I can't sympathize or empathize on every tiny little thing in your life. I, I don't know what you're going through. I don't, I, can't, I don't know how you're feeling, but I need you to know that Jesus does know how you're feeling. He created you, and he, as we've talked about already, he lived as a man. He went through everything that you went through yet did not sin. Lean on him, trust on him, and, and trust in the goodness of God and that he will work out all things for good. And most of all, lean into the whole reason for choice. Choose to love God. Choose to trust God. And in so doing, you are stepping into that promise of goodness Right? All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If you love God, guess what? You're called according to his purpose. You're called according to his purpose whether you make that choice or not. But when you choose to love him, you step into that promise of goodness and calling. But if you reject him, ultimately you're inviting evil into your life and into the lives of those around you. Let's pray.